Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host, Ben Myers, and I am probably flying solo again today uh, because Steve is dealing with some investors and uh, he might show up. We might we might jump uh, we might fly him in in the middle of it, but uh, but we are going with me again. I know the witty banter that some of you tune in for maybe will be uh, lacking, but one group that isn't lacking is the sponsor of the show, is the Plus Group. They're comprised of five distinct companies, RN Design, SRN Architects, Salesfish, Sales Software, Kool-Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple, revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, visit theplusgroup.ca. Well, I'm excited. We have a, a great guest today. Um, not our typical, you know, developer guest, but uh, someone that's actually occasionally critical of developers. So some of you, uh, some of you might uh, might object to some of the things he says, but uh, well, well, we'll see. We'll see. So Alex <laughs> Bozikovic. Yes, <laughs> is the architecture critic for the Globe and Mail, covering architecture, urbanism, and related subjects in Canada and globally. He has been writing about these subjects for more than a decade for publications including Wallpaper, Dwell, Metropolis, Azure, Design Lines, Frame, and Toronto Life. He is the co-author of the Toronto Architecture, a City Guide. Alex has two degrees in English, having attended the University of Toronto and City University of New York. He is Canadian National Magazine Award nominee and winner and prominent voice on urbanist issues on Twitter. Welcome to the show, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be known as a prominent voice on Twitter. <laughs> I added that. I added that to your bio. <laughs> So let's let's jump right into it. Let's jump right into it. You um, you know have you always wanted to be a, a writer? Give us you know give us a little bit of uh, additional flavor on your your background and career path. Yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer and uh, had a bit of an strange uh, career path. I uh, studied English at university. I figured out pretty early that I wanted to be a journalist um, and then essentially took a detour into you know wanting to be an academic for a couple of years. Um, quickly figured out that that was not a wise idea. Um, went to New York for grad school, turned around and came home very quickly, uh, and then sort of worked my way up as a writer and an editor. And um, while building my career in newspapers, I started to be more and more deeply interested in architecture and then in sort of the related subjects, um, our landscape and planning, and started writing about those things off the side of my desk until eventually the Globe gave me uh, the job, which is this very particular slightly odd job that I have, um, which is my dream job. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So I guess the next question is, you know, what qualifications do you need to, to, to be an architecture critic? <laughs> well, one of the uh, funny things about being a journalist is that you don't necessarily need any formal qualifications at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we think you're talking about newspaper architecture criticism. You know, there's really um, a model for that that goes back to the 1960s in the New York Times, where there was a writer called Ada Louise Huxtable who did this job uh, and did it very well. She had a degrees in art history, uh, including uh, some education in the history of architecture. Architecture. So she had a sort of more or less academic background and was able to look at architecture 
with that lens. But she was also writing about how local politics worked, how the planning process worked, the, about development economics, about how deals came together, you know, and all of that, you know, she correctly understood that the stuff that makes a city function is not ideas that architects come up with. Yeah. It's economics and politics um, and social changes of all kinds. And I think the brilliant thing about her work and the thing I have often tried to kind of work towards is to capture all that stuff and see how buildings and the way we build reflects all of these sort of larger forces. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're what was his name? His name Hume. What's his first name? Christopher Hume. <laughs> Christopher Hume. He gets a lot of criticism for some of his, some of his, he gets criticism for his criticism. So, uh, and, and people obviously gave him a hard time for, for what they, the, what they said that he didn't have enough qualifications to make some of the comments that he had. So uh, I just wondered what, <laughs> you know, if you had to have anything and, uh, and, uh, nope, and I, what, what uh, I guess on that, on that topic, obviously architecture is, is, is pretty subjective. Um, you know, what type of fee- what like what kind of feedback do you get on your your criticism? Do you, and do you ever get like nasty emails from architects? Well, when I write, when I write about buildings, which is less and less often these days, because yeah. I'm often talking about planning and yeah. the politics of housing, um, architects can be a little bit sensitive. <laughs> they can get a little shirty, um, and I think you know. I like to generally to focus on praising buildings and projects because they're there aren't a lot of things happening in this city or in this country that make me really excited right now. I think the architecture is not having a particularly good decade for a variety of reasons. And so generally I try and be positive and focus on the public, the projects, particularly public ones that I think are really great. On the other hand, sometimes, you know, buildings are important and they are not very good. And it's part of my job to, to say that and really nobody else will. Yeah. Have you ever uh, had anyone ask you to consult on their project before? Uh, in what sense? And just to you know to comment on it, like a almost like a design review panelist. Uh, privately, you mean? Yeah, it does happen. Yeah, I, I get messages sometimes from some folks I know, um, <laughs> and I try to be uh, restrained about that. Generally, you know, I don't tell people anything in private that I wouldn't say in public. Yeah, I think in general, as a journalist, you know, we have to be careful to. Um, not, I think as a journalist, you need to be careful to, uh, to do your work as much as possible in public. Yeah. But, um, you know, conversations are great. I talk to a wide variety of people, um, architects, developers, planners, uh, people in municipal government, you know, just from day to day and from week to week in order to understand what's going on. Um, because I really, as much as I have sort of the, um, as much as I have the job and to a certain degree, you know, as you were saying, there are no qualifications. When you have the job, you get to say what you think. Um, <laughs> I also, you know, I want to be entertaining, but I also want to be right. And I want to make sure that when I take a position that I can defend it and that I understand fundamentally what's going on and why a building or why, a, you know, a project or a phenomenon is happening the way it is. So I, I do put more work into that than might be uh, that might be obvious. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I guess I mean I wanted to. There's a couple of ways I wanted to go, but uh, in terms of like architecture and and um, you know being a journalist. But uh, I I, wa- I recently watched uh, a movie on what was it called um, Spotify and how that got started and how it's a free music service and how they monetize it and 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 how everyone came to just expect music to be free. 
Yep. Right. And, and I, I was never, I never downloaded free music. I'm, and I'm not trying to pat myself in the back, but I was like, music is not free. Someone took the time to record this music, to work on this music and they deserve to be compensated for it. Right. Yes. And you know, I get so much of your content for free, but anytime it's behind a paywall, you'll always get this criticism of, Oh, it's behind a paywall. I guess I can't read it. What do you think of the, you know, just your high level uh, uh, outlook on 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 journalism and the and the monetization of of journalism? Well, I mean, the music business is not a bad parallel, um, except that I'm on salary. Yeah, in the, music, <laughs> in the music business, you know, the people who you know run the industry aren't doing as well as they used to do, but are still they're doing fine, right? Yeah. Um, artists are not. Whereas in journalism, you know. In, to a degree, there's an analogy there. Being a freelance journalist is kind of a punishing business now. You yeah. know, it has been for a generation now. But, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a salary job and to have a degree of security and also to be working for an organization that is run by smart business people. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I pay for journalism. I'm happy to do that. The Globe is not inexpensive, but there are always sales if you uh, if, if you're looking for them. And I mean, I feel really lucky to be able to have the chance to do the work that I do, which, you know, takes time. It takes resources. And I think the good news is that there's an audience for what I do. Uh, and our audience with the Globe and Mail, there are enough people who are interested enough in it and are willing to pay for it that, um, you know, that, that those transactions are happening. Yeah. So, so I'm doing okay. And I'm told we're doing well. So. <laughs> Not yeah. that I would know. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting business for, you know, going back to my days, you know, when I was getting quoted a lot more frequently in, in the media and there was, you know, it was the globe, the star, the post, and they were must read, right? Those were the sources. Those are the places that you went to, to get your news. And, and then it just, it changed so quickly and became so fragmented. And so the sources became, you know, because people needed those clicks, it just became, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Just more sensational, mm -hmm. right? You know, I would, I would, you know, have a conversation with a journalist for 20 minutes, I would say two things negative about what was happening in the condo market. And then there's the headline, that one thing. And then so it's like, well, that's not the, 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 that's not where I was going with this conversation. Right. And then I have my clients call me up, Ben, why are you so negative about the market? Right. So right. it, it really is difficult. And, and, and there was even, you know, I had to just stop talking to a couple of publications because they just weren't presenting my what I was saying in the proper proper light, right? So, um, you know, I don't know if there's a, is a question in there. Anyways, <laughs> it's more of a more of a comment on how you know it's it's become come so clickbaity and uh, and and speaking of clickbaity, you're. Uh, the, the clickbait mayoral ca candidate uh, only got 1% of the vote, so I wanted to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I didn't even mention that person at any point during the campaign. I don't, I don't really think there's a point. Um, I think the subtext to our conversation is that you spend some time on Twitter. I still spend too much time on Twitter. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, I think it sort of it feeds my work. Um, the difficulty is that with social media, um, both the promise and the problem of social media is that simple messages can travel very quickly, yeah. right? Um, which means that sometimes, you know, getting feedback as a journalist, learning things as a journalist, understanding um, sort of popular sentiment or sentiment within your industry, for instance, you know, we have 
more varied and direct routes to learning stuff than we did before. Um, so Twitter, if that's not where you spend all of your time, um, you know, can be actually a really valuable tool. On the other hand, as you say, you know, people are prone to oversimplifying things, to sensationalizing things. And I'm always interested in the work that I do in trying to complicate things. I'm always trying to, as best I can, to understand the full picture and to understand all of what's going on uh, and to explain it. Um, and sometimes I can be a, a little bit long-winded in the, in the work that I do. Yeah. Um, no, so. I mean, I, I, I was, I think I had some questions on there in, in regard, regards to Twitter. I mean, I respect the hell out of you that you're, I mean, we probably bumped heads a few times just because I'm an opinionated and you're opinionated, but but I respect the fact that you you're out there. You're you have no problem dropping people's names and being critical when they when they deserve it, right? Um, and uh, and that's not that's not easy to do, right? Um, it can be difficult, and I think the um, you know the, the development industry um, doesn't have a clear idea of what quality means um, yeah. or what good design is, um, and society at large doesn't really have a good idea of what good design is or even what makes a good city. And, you know, while on social media, I may be occasionally a little bit shirty, um, I think that it's useful for us to have a robust conversation, sometimes which can be negative at times about what works and what doesn't work. Um, because I find the real estate industry tends to be very sort of self-congratulatory. There's a lot, there's a lot of backslapping, you know, awards being given out for the marketing for projects that aren't going to be finished for five years as if that matters, you know? Um, and the fact is that, you know, what developers and builders are doing is important. I mean, it's deeply important and it will have, you know, every building that goes up will continue to shape people's lives for, you know, half a century to come. And, you know, the stakes are high. And how we do this matters. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a, that's a, a good segue back into the discussion about architecture. And um, I guess you know we know that you know many developers dumb down their designs to lower costs, but often the architects are unfairly blamed for these uh, for these uh, uh, bland designs. Do you think that they get uh, um, you know kind of a, a raw deal in that whole situation? I do think architects are pretty low down on the totem pole in most situations, and that's true in the public sector as well. Um, and it's unfortunate because as recently as 40 years ago, architects had a lot more cultural capital than they do now. Yeah. You know, architecture was a prestigious profession. Um, you know, you go back 50 years and, you know, the first prime minister Trudeau, you know, used to have dinner with Arthur Erickson on a, on a regular basis. You know, the idea that architects were... Um, intellectuals and artists who had something to say and whose views were important, you know, that was in the culture, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and it's not anymore, you know, and I think in the development industry, it is true, unfortunately, that architects don't often have the power to pull for what they think is best, or at least to, to win the conversation. Uh, and I think, you know, I think that's a shame. I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, everybody involved could try a little harder on the small things and get, um, you know, much better results for the city and for the community than they do. Yeah, I saw, I, I for the first time ever, I saw an architect, uh, an architect put on their website a picture of a development that they were credited as being the architecture of record and saying, this was not our vision. The developer dumbed down this project as much as he could and, and, uh, and, and it looks completely different than what we anticipated and we want you to know that. And that was the first time <laughs> I've ever seen someone actually do that. And I thought that was, that took some, uh, some cojones to go out there and, uh, and do that. It's always, you know, 
difficult to, you know, to bite the hand that feeds you, I guess. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, and architects are, you know, fundamentally they're, you know, it's a service industry, right. And you do have to please your clients. Um, you know, and I am sitting over here and, you know, throwing popcorn from, you know, from the corner, uh, and I can say things that sometimes I can say things that, you know, people within the industry would like to say and, and can't, but I think, a crucial thing to understand is that people's ideas about, um, you use the phrase dumbed down, right? And sometimes that can fit. But I think with a lot of new building, especially multi-res, the idea is that good design is complicated and that good design is flashy. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think in a lot of cases for a variety of reasons, new mixed-use projects, especially the large ones, and new multi-res are just getting stuff wrong that is fundamental and that wouldn't necessarily be that hard to fix or that expensive to fix. I think that people's focus is just sometimes on the wrong things. Um, You know, it's not about how many colors there are in the building or how many different types of cladding there are in the building. It's not about whether the building is a funny shape. It's about how the building meets the street, what's happening on ground level, how do people come in and out of the building? What is their experience like? Um, you know, that connection between the building and the public realm, you know, I think is where building in a city begins. And that's really just nuts and bolts stuff that doesn't have to be expensive or complicated to do. Yeah. yeah. And we've, uh, I mean, we've done 40 episodes of this, uh, this podcast and I probably on 30 of them <laughs> discuss the fact that most high rise condo developers don't know how to do retail mm-hmm. and or they ignore the best practices just because it's much easier to put a I mean it's financially better to put a RBC in right. the entire thing or a shopper's drug mart or a, or an ENW or a pet value in there than to do small scale retail and have it not just be a you know a, a, a straight right across max absolutely maximize the square footage to the, the nth degree right. instead of doing cutouts and making it look interesting and, and and I thought I think if they had if they just did retail better there'd be so much less emphasis on the height Right. If they put in a new building and there's bricks and they were different brick colors and they and and it it seamlessly fit into the existing context of a, a young street as opposed to just being this just breaks up what used to be the, these cool little shops, there would be much less talk about this you know, financialization and corporatization and this blandness in the, in the city, if they could just get that right. I've heard your take on this. And I I think you're correct. (laughs) I do. I do. Um, because people think when they talk about new development, they're always focused on the statistics, right? They're focused on height and sometimes they're focused on density numbers because that's what the planning process privileges. But nobody has any idea whether a building, when a building is finished, nobody has any idea whether it's 26 or 29 stories or 27 or 34 stories. I mean, it really is very difficult to perceive that kind of a difference once you get beyond, I would say, about 15 stories. So I think there's a useful lesson there, which is, you know, basically the point you're making. What happens on the ground and how a building interacts with the street and with the general public, that's kind of almost the whole ballgame. If you deal with that and you deliver some degree of affordability in a housing project, for me, you're most of the way there, no matter what color the building is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it is funny, though, that, you know, when they used to have these pug awards and, and they and people would vote on or even even Urban Toronto's now doing, you know, things to vote on. People always prefer office towers, office towers without balconies as the most desirable. And often the often these 
office towers are not funky shapes. They don't have multiple treatments. They there's just one set of cladding, and and uh, and uh, and they always score really high. So it's kind of interesting that balconies have. Uh, uh, disturb the eye. I don't. I didn't even know how to say it. I don't know what 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 the, what the difference is between the two. No, I think you're right. I mean, simple building forms. I think actually are good. And there are a couple of things going on here um, that prevent us from achieving that more often. Uh, one is you know balconies. In a lot of multi-res, people perceive that balconies are necessary. Uh, and the best developer architects like Peter Clues and Architects Alliance are have ways of disguising balconies so that they don't have such a great visual impact. Yeah. But balconies have their own issues, including with uh, energy performance that you know really need to be carefully thought out. I think the other one beyond balconies is this idea that variety is necessarily good. And you get this from, I think, the sales side uh, in multi-res projects where a building has to, in a rendering, has to look different, right? It has to, you know, be clearly legible. So it's got to have a, you know, a lightning bolt pattern or a checkerboard (laughs) pattern or whatever. And that just really rewards the wrong things because buildings that work well, and my take on this is a little bit traditional, but buildings that work well are simple visually from a distance, but interesting from up close. So... If you look at the buildings that people like best, whether they are um, modernist buildings or buildings prior to modernism, you know, I was, I think, somewhere on Twitter, I, uh, you know, mentioned this, that there's an office building downtown, an office and commercial building on Yonge Street that it was finished around 1900. It's about six stories tall. It's made of red brick. Um, and from a distance, it looks very simple. It's almost um, modernist in its simplicity. But when you get up close, you can see that there's ornament uh, in the stonework at ground level yeah. that gives you something to, you know, to feast your eyes on. So the shape of the building is simple. The elevations of the building are fairly simple, and which looks good. And then when you get up close, there's something to look at and narrow storefronts as you walk by so that you don't get bored. Yeah. And that's a simple recipe. It's just basically the opposite of what we do right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting to get your opinion. One of my favorite buildings is the, uh, uh, the AM Stern Yorkville condo project. Are you a fan of that type of architecture? I think if you're going to do a building that is traditional in style, that one really, you know, borrows from the New York apartment houses of the 1920s and 1930s. And, you know, Robert A.M. Stern's office do that as well as anybody, yeah. right? They understand the architecture in its details and understand how to execute it. And it's good. It's well done. I think that, you know, towers that adopt that traditional language um, often kind of fall apart because people aren't really sure what style they're imitating, yeah. you know, and the details aren't exactly right or there's sort of a mishmash of several different styles. That's what you see on traditional single family houses. And I'm saying traditional with quotes, quote marks around <laughs> it, right? I mean, people think there are two kinds of architecture, modern and traditional, which is, you know, <laughs> not, yeah, I probably uh, fall into that. I probably fall a little bit into that trap well, myself. But most people don't think much about architecture. And, you know, what we have learned over the last, you know, 40 years is, is that sort of distinction between between, you know, simple things and, you know, old stuff that's got bits on it. And it's just, 
if that is as deep as your kind of analysis goes or as deep as your thinking goes, the results are never going to come out very well. Because yeah. when you look at, you know, his call them historicist styles of different periods, including the ones that have happened here in Toronto, they each have their own characteristics, right? I mean, they, they each have their own approach to detail and ornament and form. And, you know, people weren't just making stuff up and throwing things together. Um, you know, in a contemporary building, it's obviously hard to do detail of a lot of kinds. Um, you know, the trades being what they are, um, construction costs being what they are, making things complicated um, is difficult now, yeah. right? It's not always economical. But I do think that there are architects working in multi-res who understand how to do that. And I think that both um, the developers and builders and also architects need to think a lot harder about those fundamentals of, you know, what is going to work well from the street, what's going to serve the street well. And I think also what's going to be timeless, right? Because it's buildings, the busier a building is, the more fussy its architecture is, the more likely it is to look like hell in five years, yeah. right? Things go bad if you try too hard. And <laughs> I think we're doing a lot of buildings these days that are not going to age very well. Yeah. Wow. I already see some of the green glass buildings from 20 years ago. And I just like, oh, God. And I, I love the color. Green's one of my favorite colors. Yeah, I see them. I'm like, oh, no. What's that going to look like in 20 years from now? <laughs> like, it just looks so, so terrible. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> anyways, anyways, where was I, where was I going? Uh, it's interesting. This is maybe where we disagreed a bit once on, on, on Twitter is that the, the Bloor and Dufferin project, they're mm. taking down the school. And I have an interesting perspective because I went to school in Guelph. I went to the oldest school in Guelph built in the, you know, 1902 heritage elements, brick building, you know, very, very nice looking. And then when I went to university, I went to a no name university that had all new buildings but they had all the bells and whistles that that you'd want to to when you're in school, right? You know, it was one of the first uh, in in the area to have full Wi-Fi in the school and 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 uh, um, plugins that you want and all and all that fun stuff. And so, so, I, so I so I wonder what's the value? You know, how how as a is your evaluating um, these things? Like, how do you value something like the heritage impacts versus? Hey, the straight use of this re requires that it's so much easier just to build a brand new school from scratch. Right. So there's a lot to unpack here. But I mean, the first question really is what is the importance of heritage preservation? Or how should we think about heritage preservation? I have a peculiar take on this stuff because I am the co author of this guidebook to Toronto architecture. I, you know, sort of spent a few years studying the architectural history of Toronto and also more generally and understanding how this city came to be and understanding how the movement of heritage preservation came to be in the 1960s and 1970s. So I've been pretty deep in the weeds on this stuff. At the same time, I'm also um, very um, Yimby friendly in my views. Let's say I understand that uh, big cities that are growing need to make room for new stuff. And so I both understand the importance of heritage and I'm willing to criticize, you know, overreaches in heritage. And I think right now Toronto is at an interesting spot because you mentioned that one project, um, which was a redevelopment of a set of three uh, public school sites at the corner of Bloor and Dufferin. And what was missed there um, is that the city's heritage planners in their wisdom basically ignored the site completely and decided not to um, protect 
most of those buildings at all. Uh, in the end, you know, part of one of the three buildings on the site is being saved. And I thought that there was, that that was a real oversight. Um, I think that public buildings actually are important in the history of a city. Um, they have a lot of memories and social history attached to them. Uh, and in many cases, including that one, the architecture is also really good. So that doesn't mean that no development should have happened there. It doesn't mean that you can't have new development while you're also maintaining some degree of heritage preservation, at least when you have a big piece of land like that. Mm -hmm. It is possible to do both. And I think there, um, this is a development where um, uh, I've taken a very strong interest. Um, I care more about this than uh, anybody else does <laughs> because I care about the history of schools and school architecture quite a lot. Uh, and I also see the potential for a big development there. So just to recap, I think that development, which adds a bunch of density, is basically fine. Um, adding a lot of new housing in that location makes a lot of sense. I just think in design terms that all of that density should have been pushed into fewer, taller buildings. So more of what was already there could have been retained. Yeah. So for me, you know, the balance of, between old and new is not always easy, but where it works best is in situations such as in the distillery district where um, you've got a set of important older buildings that are in beautiful shape and still have a lot of social value. People love them, they can still be used. At the same time, you have a bunch of new density and the two of those things can coexist. Um, so it's doable. Yeah. Um, the key uh, to doing that is to just allow tall buildings to sit alongside old ones, um, <laughs> which seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. But in the world of heritage, uh, the policy objectives are not always just about keeping old stuff. It's about, you know, making new buildings fit in with old ones and defer to old ones. And that's where I think, you know, we really get into a lot of trouble. Um, it is possible. And I think the results are really superior, you know, if developers and landowners can find a way to keep some of what's already on their sites while building behind and around them. I think the results are better for everybody. And I think in the end, they develop, as at the distillery district, I think they generate a lot of value. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I'm obviously I work in the new development industry. I'm, I'm, I'm very pro-development, but my favorite streets in Toronto is Queen West, right? Like, <laughs> that's my favorite street to go to when I when I when I travel, and it's and it's low rise, and it's uh, it's hardly any new development on it, right? right. Like, uh, so I so I realize the the value of it, and and and. and I'm maybe in the minority, but I love facadism. <laughs> I think that's so fun. I, I think it's so cool to just have a piece of a building just stuck on the outside of a new one, just and it creates a story and a discussion of what was there and and uh, and and why it is and and yeah, and they probably could have, have kept more of that that school and, and and built around it. And it's it's unfortunate that you know NIMBYs in that area in the name of you know, talking in the name of gentrification are fighting that development when they don't understand that you just, you need, we need to just keep adding supply and keep adding supply and keep adding supply. And, and even if it's expensive now, it will be the cheap in 25 years from now, it will be the cheap housing that's, that's available. And, uh, that's and right. people just can't wrap their, <laughs> wrap their heads around that whole notion. But I am a little disappointed with when uh, the architecture came out for that project, <laughs> let's hope that the final product looks a little bit better than the uh, than the uh, the rendering. So I, I'm I'm I can't remember if that is a client of mine. So I'm, it's, I might be getting a, Fitz, getting a Fitzrovia, call. I think. So um, 
who I understand are, are good business people and very well respected. But yeah, I you think- know. I think when you have, I mean, those are rental buildings too. And I think this is a really crucial thing that I think we need to talk about is just for the industry in general, folks are just not willing to put in the money or to put in the effort and thinking time to figure out how to make good places. You know, I mean, I know a little bit about how performers work in the city right now. And, you know, the difference in architecture fees between, you know, sort of the top tier architects for large projects and the people who do all the work, it's not a huge difference. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're talking about a project that's in the hundreds of millions and, you know, developers want to save, you know, half a million dollars on the soft costs and the end results of the city because of who you hire and the sort of the conceptual equipment they bring to the job is, is really dramatic. So, I mean, you got to hire the right people who are understand how to make good places and also listen to them to a certain degree about what's necessary. I mean, developers and builders have a responsibility to do better and to leave a legacy. And while everybody has to make a living and investors need to be, need to get the returns, we can do better given the, design and construction capabilities in this city and in this market. And given the prices that things are going for now, I absolutely believe we have the capacity to make better places than we're making right now. The partner for that, you know, that development is, is Hazelview. And, and, and I know that uh, Fitzrovia did a fantastic project on Spadina where they, you know, renovating the silver dollar room and add, and, you know, incorporated that into the development. And what's kind of interesting about that project versus a condominium is they can do more with like the lobby. They can put in a, a breakfast bar, they can put in, you know, paid uh, uh, type amenities into into a building, whereas a condominium corp can't profit. They can't make a profit off things in their in their building. So, it, it, you know, in the rental, it allows it to do do uh, um, a little bit different with the, uh, you know, with the lobby and what's what's included in it. So right. anyway, Steve and I have talked about that before and and uh, and how we w- we wish the condos at, were, were more like, you know, luxury hotels in terms of uh, having a bar and you know, all that type of stuff in there and make it a little more have a little bit more of a social um, impact, right? You know, and a lot of people complain, well, I live in this 500 unit building and I know like three people in this entire building are right. getting the elevator and, and people don't say hi. And, and you know, even uh, one of the counselors is in BC was saying that living in high rise buildings was like bad for your health and, uh, and you don't meet your neighbors and stuff. And I always I just roll my eyes at some of these things that people will actually say with a straight face in a, in a, in a yeah. campaign to, uh, I'm rolling my eyes here as well yeah, so. to, to, to win votes. <laughs> I mean, for sure. I mean, I'm totally with you. We need, you know, Toronto is, um, Toronto needs more density. And it, a lot of the density realistically is going to have to take the form of high rise, right? And there are ways to make that better. I think city planning in Toronto doesn't always have the best ideas about w- what is actually required to make that work. I also think the city, you know, it's their job essentially to set the right ground rules and to focus on the right things. And I have a lot of problems with how city planning has been conducting themselves for the last few years. Um, You know, they have a lot of different goals. Some of those goals are contradictory. I don't think that anybody in city hall or in the industry has a really clear idea of what a good new urban building should look like or what it should include. I think there are a lot of different recipes and a lot of different checklists. And I think on some level, particularly with respect to design, we just really need to simplify. We need to really focus on, again, what does the front of the building look like? How does it meet the street? What materials do you see there? Um, What 
is the offering of retailer services that faces the public realm? You know, what does the front door look like? Um, what is the quality of the landscape around the building? I mean, this is the last, whatever, 5% of the budget, you know, and probably the least commercially important part of the entire project for most multi-res. And that's kind of where all the important stuff happens. And we have been too focused on making buildings look good in renderings or, you know, uh, and on the city side, you know, holding fast to certain ideas about urban design, about where tall buildings should go or tall buildings need to be, you know, step down in a certain direction or step up in a certain direction. There are all of these different ideas floating around, I think, that kind of miss the fundamentals. Um, and back to your A&W critique, I, I, I think it's right. I mean, if the street is right, um, then the building will be greeted in a more, you know, the reception to the building will be better. And ultimately, that's what is going to make the building and the block uh, work better over the longer term. Um, a big part of the responsibility of a builder is just getting that stuff right. And we could do it. We yeah. just aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we're in, we're in my office today and we're on the, the east the east end of the city. So it's a little bit different than downtown where there's a lot, you know, higher demand for, for retail. And so there's been a bunch of buildings, one, you know, on the Danforth, at, you know, near Woodbine. It's been completed for a year. They've got one one tenant in the ground floor. And right. so the, the developer had wanted there to be live work at the at, at the bottom, uh, smaller spaces. But the city said we want retail. We want a continuous, you know, we want retail all along Danforth. And, you know, here we are a year later with one health clinic in there, right? And then we have, you know, there's a building on Kingston Road that's been completed for two years, not a single retail tenant, and another one, uh, Kingston and, and Woodbine. They tried to sell the retail for years and then eventually chopped it up into some type of live workspace. So it's, it's kind of disappointing that we... We can't quite figure it out. The old, you know, and and if it's if it's not those, you know, major chains, it's a freaking cannabis shop, right? It's a coffee shop, or it's some type of health related, independent health related <laughs> services. Right. So it's really, you know, the. You know, actually, there was one on Queen that actually was an independent retailer went in there. I was like so shocked at Queen and uh, oh my god, Queen and Coxwell in the Marlin Spring building. They actually had a, a a craft type store in there, and I was <laughs> I was I had to buy something. I went in and I said I got to buy something in this store because <laughs> I want these types of stores to to succeed. And and again, I'm not sure there's a the question there, but you know. I, 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 I think there is, though. I think, I, I think I'm going to pull out a question. Okay. Yeah. So how do developers and builders deal with that kind of situation where, you know, the retail on the front of the building that they've been asked to do is not working that well? And I think, first of all, we have to think about this from the beginning of the process. When you look at the floor plates for new buildings, the ground floor plate for especially the Toronto Avenue's mid-rise buildings, they're just they're not good because the retail ends up being these tiny little spaces that are often sort of horizontal or parallel to the street and they're often cut up by all sorts of structure and things. So, you know, in Toronto, the traditional pattern is a store is long and skinny, right? Yeah. And that works well because you get a certain amount of frontage and you see this in cities all around the world, the valuable frontage at the at at the street, you know, you get a fairly small quantity of it, but then you've got a lot of space to do business, right? So as much as you possible, that's what we need to do. So, I mean, those ground floors of new buildings, if you end up configuring the retail space with the configuration and the size, it's actually going to make sense for people. Um, you end up with a better street as well. Lots of, you know, narrow shops rather than wide and shallow ones. And I mean, if those aren't necessarily profitable, 
I think that building owners, even if they're not going to have a long-term hold on the building, really need to think about the legacy that they're creating and what they are building in terms of even their own brands. Um, you know, if you've got a building that, again, feels like a good neighbor that serves the street well, you know, even if you're not getting the highest possible rent for those commercial spaces, but everybody who lives there is happy and the neighbors are happy and the city is happier with you because you have created a lively piece of street rather than a dead zone, there has to be some value in that, you know, whether directly or indirectly. Um, And I think you're just saying, throwing up your hands and saying, you know, there's nothing we can do is just not an adequate response. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're 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 entering a period of correction in the new housing market, and uh, I've unfortunately been getting fewer calls for <laughs> consulting lately with this increase in uh, in interest rates. And uh, you know, I think the last three studies I've done are are rentals, and it's in its. Uh, it might be interesting that we see a lot more rental, which may actually be good for the for the public realm because you know you have to keep selling that unit over and over and over again as opposed right. to just selling it once to an investor and, right. and building it and, and walking away mm-hmm. right you have to have a, a a finished product that appeals to 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 end users right um so that'll be an interesting uh interesting change in the marketplace but uh yeah i guess i guess the, the question i wanted to bring it bring it back is a little t- more towards uh the recent you know proposed planning changes and in one of the probably the one of the most controversial ones was a potential changes to the uh rent replacement if people don't know if i think it's five units any any building with greater than five units six, six uh where the unit where, where 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 units are uh rental units are demolished for a new building have to be replaced in those buildings so in many instances, it, it does make financial sense to uh, uh, to do that, but in, in in others, it it doesn't. You know, Matt Lau and and others are are very much against against this rule because it's going to hurt. You know, they believe it's going to hurt affordable uh, rental in the city, and it and it probably will. But there's obviously a trade off, right? There's a trade off. What is forty five apartments at below market? below market rate worth versus 500 apartments at the market right right and uh you know i'll just pose i'll just i'll pose this question and again just playing devil's advocate so let's say alex you're a single guy you're living in a in an apartment in the annex it's it's 1200 square foot rent controlled you've been there for 10 years you're paying two thousand dollars a month so i'm a recent graduate i'm living with my parents I can't find a place. There's hardly any vacancy in the entire city. I'm willing to pay $2,000 a month for a 500 square foot unit. And I would be able to do that if your building was torn down and replaced with a 150 unit rental project. So how do we possibly weigh your situation of not wanting to be deplay, uh, to be uh, you know displaced and and you've got this apartment that is uh, gen- generously sized and rent controlled versus me who says hey that's not fair how come you get this big affordable apartment just because you were here 10 years ago and I new guy I want to be able to live in a high rise with brand new amenities and all that fun stuff like how does the city go about trying to weigh those two things against each other well I think the the right answer is not one or the other, but both and. 
And the solution to that is finding ways to allow and incent new housing development that does not displace people. To me, that's the goal. That should be the goal of housing policy, and it should be ultimately the goal, at least in an ethical sense, of the industry. If, While it is true that not every tenant who currently enjoys low rents um, needs a subsidy, there are people who are doing well for themselves who are currently paying low rents, People, those are people's homes. People have an expectation of being able to live where they are with the agreement to which, you know, they and their landlord have agreed without having that torn up and without being thrown into today's market. And people have structured their lives around that agreement and around that reality. And some people, it's true, will have money and be able to make choices, but a lot of people don't. I mean, close to half of Toronto are tenants and, you know, the mix of incomes among tenants versus homeowners is dramatically different. I mean, for for the most part, tenants have less money than homeowners do. And so I just, I don't think you can overlook that concern. I don't think you can dismiss it. Um, on the other hand, I think it's really important that we think about that young person who is looking for somewhere to live as well. And I think that that young person's needs are also important. And it should be possible for private developers to build housing for that new person. I just think the key for that is opening up places in Toronto. And this is true in other cities as well. I think the key for this is just opening up room in the city to build new housing that is not on top of existing renters. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of room to do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I live in a house neighborhood which has been losing population for the last 50 years, which is I live a five minute walk from a subway line. And there is at least not yet no apartment development happening anywhere where I am. You know, um, ultimately, if we allow the development industry to assemble houses and buy out the existing owners. Those people who are homeowners are going to profit if they choose to leave. Um, a small number of tenants will be displaced by, in that process, but a lot less than the alternative. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bottom line is when you're tearing down apartment buildings to build new condos, you are m messing up the lives of hundreds of people in any given case. And I think that does need to be weighed and the alternative is there for us. It just means we have to open up planning such that it's possible to build housing in more places, um, you know, in ways that don't displace people and ultimately in a way that changes the lives of or interferes with the lives of homeowners rather than tenants who, you know, have less say and have less freedom over you know, to control their their destiny. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think any any four lane uh, street in this in Toronto, you should be able to build a six story apartment on it. Well, I think that's really modest. Right. I, I mean, I, I, th I honestly think it should be more than that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I would go quite a lot farther than that. Um, the tricky thing is um, I was talking earlier about how with respect to building design, our emphasis or our approach is kind of backwards. Right. And I think that's true with housing in Toronto as well. And this is typical of North American cities, but it's still a problem. The house neighborhoods are where the smallest density of people live, where people have the most power and the most ability to control their destinies. And that is the last place that we're choosing to put housing. Yeah. You know, the main streets, you know, putting new condos on main streets is destroying the character of those streets to a large degree. Right. I mean, we've been talking about how to make main streets, new main street condos better. Well, how about not building there? You know, I mean, when I think of my neighborhood, you know, west of the annex in Toronto, where the community life happens, you know, where, you know, planning folks call the street life happens is on Bloor Street. 
it's where the shops are, where the restaurants are, that's where you run into people. You know, if a whole block of stores and restaurants goes away, my neighborhood gets worse. If 20 houses goes away, I as a neighbor, I'm not affected at all, yeah. right? That's the life of the neighborhood does not happen in a particular set of houses. It happens in the places where people gather. And for a lot of complicated and sometimes really terrible reasons, we have chosen to focus all of the growth in Toronto exactly on the backs of tenants and exactly on top of the commercial strips where the social life of the city happens. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but it doesn't have to yeah. be. I'm hoping at, at some point in time we get a, 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 a you know a government, and a, I'm not sure which 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 level it has to be that that ends. You know, and single-family zoning. That's uh, it's surprising. We even had developers on our show that that say they don't want they don't want to end single-family zoning, which is which is interesting because and, they and, don't want the competition. Yeah, and, and and that's a weird thing because a couple of these people are so big that a few missing middle developers is not going to impact their bottom line and even the slightest bit, right? Uh, you know, I think some of those homeowners that sell their house to a missing middle developer are going to go buy one of their giant penthouses, yes. <laughs> right, with their with their windfall. But yes. uh, um, yeah, that, I guess that brings me to another question. And, 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 you know, the thing that drives me absolutely bananas on Twitter is when a planner comes on that I can tell his never owned a business never made any, uh, taken any financial risk in their entire life, and probably never taken an economics class, says, oh, well, all these changes are being made for a windfall of developers, right? But with not understanding that so many of these sites are not financially viable. There's a reason that there's so many approved development sites that are not built, and it's not because the developer's sitting on the land. It's because they're not financially viable projects. Right. Or... They might actually be a financially viable uh, project, but this developer is not financeable. He has not had enough successful developments to get co a construction loan right. to build this project. Right. So he needs to be successful on a bunch of projects to finally be able to get cheaper debt and cheaper equity and build more projects. So, right. so one, it does help supply for developers to be successful on their existing projects. But the bigger factor is, is we want to bring down the costs of a developer so they can build in North Etobicoke, so they can build in the middle of Scarborough, so they can build in in some of these. Well, we're building in a lot of these areas that didn't have development before, but, you know, Weston, Caledonia, like like all these places need to become viable condominium markets. Right. And they need to bring bring down to the cost of that. And it's just it frustrates me that so many people just can't see that fact. Right. The it's just the most ignorant thing to say is just build what's approved right and it's like we, maybe you approved something that's not financially viable but you chopped down two floors because you know joe schmo eight houses down the road was like someone's gonna look in my backyard and you know i'm having a picnic and i don't want someone to do that so it's just the strangest set of <laughs> well <laughs> laws and, and again i was very rambling but do you know I know you're trying to like educate the public, but you know, any thoughts on anything I just said, right? 
<laughs> well, it's tough because people hate the development industry, right? I mean, and you've talked about this many times, you know, and I've heard other people in the industry complain about it as well, that, you know, nobody complains about Loblaws making a profit, yeah. right? Even, even when their profits are <laughs> high and rising, yeah. um, you know, and everybody assumes that developers are minting money, which, you know, in some cases, the returns are very nice, but is they're not always as high as people think. I think the fundamental issue is that is one that is that the industry can't really solve by itself. Um, if we're talking about the city of Toronto, um, the process has been so complex and so opaque and taxes and charges are so high um, that the industry is dealing with a burden that is considerable, that stops housing from happening in a lot of places. And no one has any sympathy for you guys, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nobody cares. Uh, and I understand why that is. But um, I guess the question is, how the industry as a whole can make a better argument for the value that they create. And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, I think making buildings that people like better uh, and then delivering in a more meaningful way on housing affordability, which is something we haven't talked about much, mm -hmm. you know, I think is also really important. Um, you know, I think if an individual development proposal comes forward now um, and they're able to make a strong argument that it will be beautiful, it will make the block and the neighborhood and the city better, and that there will be some meaningful contribution to, you know, helping a certain number of people economically. That's the case that you need to make, right? Um, and smart developers do those things. Smart developers are able to sell on all of those things. It's not enough to just say privately, well, the city is, you know, gouging us, you know, and taxing us to death, you know, even if taxes are in fact very high and development charges are very high. People don't see that. Um, and it's not enough to, you know, simply say, you know, we've done our part, we've paid our taxes, we have to build. The fact is that the political situation does not, the politics are not there for you to take that kind of, you know, standoffish attitude. Um, for better or for worse, the industry needs to make a case for what they do. And, you know, as I said, I mean, they just by dealing with the qualitative things and the visible aspects of a project um, and not being totally focused quite so heavily on the bottom line, you know, you could build some goodwill and it's going to be necessary to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a developer approach me wanting to see if I could do a study where I talked about the profits of, of develop other developers. And I was like, one, it's going to be impossible for me to get people to agree with that. But, you know, the fact that I mean, there's so many buildings get complete where the developer just made fees. They didn't they didn't make any money. Right. Their equity partner made money. Their their construction lender made money. Their construction company made money. Right. But they didn't make any money. Right. right. It's like you, you realize that there's profit being make it made at an entire this entire process. Right. And the fact that some people get mad that the developer makes a 15 percent profit when some guy bought a piece of land in 1970 for $12,000 and then just sold it for 45 million dollars yes. like how do you and they're the one that had your the restaurant that you loved that had the lease on that restaurant that canceled that even though it was a great tenant that that paid their bills and everyone went there because yep. they want to cash in on that big yep. big money sale right? right so why are you getting mad at the buyer why aren't you getting mad at the seller <laughs> right well so. i think it's interesting not to pick a fight with the mervish family for whom i i have a lot of respect but you know the honest eds development was such a huge um you know 
I don't know what the right metaphor is. Um, the Anastasis development was such a huge flashpoint for opposition to new development, and everyone was really angry at uh, West Bank, the developers who bought the site. Nobody was mad at the Mervishes for selling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they'd been sitting on that land for half a century and, you know, basically using it as a land bank for a good long time, you know, and the general political sense was that somehow they were the victims in this situation, right? Rather than the sellers, yeah. you know, which <laughs> is not their fault, right? It's not David Mervish's yeah. fault that people perceive it in that way. But, you know, I think the, the industry needs to be very aware of this. The politics are what they are. And I guess the only sort of positive message I have to send is that the politics are changing, right? I mean, I think a lot of younger people are much more pro-housing than older people are. I think if you don't currently own a house, then, you know, the whole traditional politics of NIMBY don't make any sense to you. So I do think it's possible for people who build new housing to make a case for what they are doing as important and valuable. But they have to put the work in. They have to produce a good product and they have to sell it and um, not just sell it, but also in a, in a broader sense, you know, sort of promote what they do um, as being good for everybody. Um, and there's a kind of defensiveness um, and standoffishness among some people in the industry that I don't think does them any favors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about that. There's, there's, you know, we're in a business that it's, it's a huge risk undertaking and, and you have to have a certain type of personality and a certain type of gumption to be a real estate developer. I mean, I, you know, having just a taste of what's that, that's like, I, I couldn't sleep at night with so much that's so out of your control. All right. And, uh, uh you know, the market is out of your control and the, the planning is so much out of your control and, and, you know, the, what everyone else is doing and they're, it can screw up what you're doing, but I agree. Uh, and, and I have a lot of respect for that. And it's a business and people, you know, people need to make a living. Investors need to get a return. But I think if you look at the people who, you know, have a little bit of um, freedom to be creative now, you know, I think of, I just mentioned West Bank, you know, that Honest Ed's project is going to be not perfect, but it's going to be, I think, the best development project Toronto has seen in 30 years, if not longer. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the principals in West Bank and in their partners, you know, are in it for the long term and they understand that creating a complicated building with, you know, 52 different retail units on the ground floor or whatever it is, it's going to be hard to lease. It's going to be annoying, but it will create a place that's not like anywhere else and people will love it and they will pay to be there and having architecture that is more complex and has a lot more detail and a landscape that is more expensive and more complicated than would be required. Like all of these things actually pay off, you know, the simplest and cheapest and easiest thing is not going to generate the same return over the long term as doing something beautiful and something interesting. And I think that's true a lot of the time. And I think a lot of folks in the industry don't perceive how true it is yeah. and how even just, just on the edge, just trying a little bit harder to make a building that is, more beautiful, more friendly, more neighborly, you know, can really actually quite directly pay off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I know people hate Brad Lamb, but, uh, you know, the one thing I do respect about him is one, he put his money where his mouth is. He would buy units and projects that he was selling and he would buy condominium units himself if, uh, if the project, uh, if the project needed it, but he wants to build a good building. He's like, I really want to deliver a quality building that I can drive by in 25, 30 years and be very proud of and not be like, okay, drive by a building and go, okay, I made a, you know, a 17% 
return on this versus a 13% return on it. I, I want this to be a quality building. And uh, and he would always like, oh, this other de- this other developer down the street building the crap, right? And he's then they're doing a disservice to the industry, right? Doing a, a cheap and cheerful type uh, type projects, well, right? Well, good but, for, I mean, in that one, in that respect, at least, you know, good for him, right? Because, <laughs> you know, if you look at the whole city, as I had to do for the architecture guidebook, and you look at all the new stuff that's gone up in this boom, you know, his buildings in architectural terms, stand up very well. Yeah. They stand up very well against those of other people. And he has a reputation as being, you know, really hard charging and cynical, but he clearly, you know, on that one aspect of the business has done much better than he had to do. I mean, he's yeah. produced buildings that are nicer to look at and nicer to walk by than other people's. And that's not the only, you know, metric by which we should be measuring people's, <laughs> you know, um, conduct in business or, you know, or their impact on the city. But it is possible to make a good living and still create good projects. And I think if you think in terms of, you know, a builder's reputation, um, you know, building well and being sophisticated about what makes a good building has got to pay off. Mm-hmm. It's got to be at least, you know, it's got to be at least worth looking into, um, you know, whether there are people who we should be bringing into the conversation or ways of doing things that are, you know, not currently the, the given that, that would actually make things better. Um, I think there's, I really do think there's a strong opportunity to, um, you know, for developers to make a good return by actually making a good city and by making buildings that are better than their competitors. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at least I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I really uh, hope so. Let's change it. Well, you mentioned it very briefly, but the, you know, the, affordability and i've always been a you know i obviously i've always liked inclusionary zoning but i hate the way we've tried to go about it just just putting all 100 of the burden on the developer oh we think you make a lot of money we have no idea because we've never looked at a pro forma <laughs> right we you drive a bmw so you must be rich you know there's best practices around the world on how to do this and i think it would just be so smart that and and so much better for the industry if we had a good inclusionary zoning program that mm-hmm. every single building the city contributes x amount to that project to deliver this many affordable housing units and then they offset those units on uh nonprofits to manage those units so every single building you see every single condo that someone sees they know that there's X amount of affordable housing units in that in that project, and we could be doing so much more on integrating city services into those buildings, right? I mean, we have all these buildings on subways. We could have city daycares in there. We could have libraries in there. We could have community centers. If we could only have a better working relationship between you know the municipalities and uh and 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 developers and i don't know if that happens that that if if that was a problem for a long time but obviously we've re-elected the uh the same mayor that we've had for for eight years and he is uh certainly had his share of criticism uh, <laughs> over the last little while for his failures on, on on delivering the type of housing that he's that he's that he's promised but uh, anyways any thoughts on how we can better integrate you know the city developers affordable housing you know and uh, you know I, again I, I think we've all been angry when we drive by and see a single story subway stop on the new Eglinton line and be like how 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 can we not have think of thought bigger about this we've been thinking about it for 
25 years, this subway line, right? I, I agree. And I had developers, you know, who I was talking to, whatever, seven or eight years ago, tell me exactly that about that line. I mean, it's not as though people weren't aware of this at, at the time. Um, you know, the problem with that particular project is that Metrolinx doesn't, as far as I understand, doesn't have a mandate to deliver housing. And they basically, they don't care. You yeah. know, they didn't want to do it because it was going to be too complicated with the kind of deal that, that they were putting together. And I just think that for both fiscal and environmental reasons, that's crazy. I mean, that's just people should be losing their jobs over that kind of a failure. Um, looking forward, there is a tremendous amount of potential in just in the city of Toronto for public bodies to do business with the private sector and to use public real estate in ways that benefit both public and private goals. Um, you know, there's been a few examples of that happening successfully. A deal that Councilor Joe Cressy put together through Create TO um, with, I can't remember who the developers were, I think it's Center Court. Okay. Um, with um, and Sweeney are the architects. You know, is creating a new building downtown that f um, uses the site of a former fire station. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yep. to create this new project that will have. Um, in the end, there will be a park and there'll be a high rise that has a certain amount of um, below market rate housing in it, uh, and I believe a daycare as well. Right. So these deals, I mean, these deals can be done. I mean, yeah. the city has a lot of power to through its approval powers to make stuff happen. And, you know, the city of Toronto, like every other government owns a lot of real estate, which yeah. is worth a lot of money. Um, the Toronto school board, which has its own um, land agency called the Toronto lands corp uh, is a giant pile of missed opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another, if you view it as a real estate portfolio, you know, a huge collection of properties where there are tremendous possibilities to deliver public and private goods at the same time. And, it's not unique to Toronto, but in general, governments are not great at real estate and they don't see real estate assets as being assets, which they are, yeah. right? Um, and I really hope that we can do better with that because I think the integration of public services you know, into new development, I think is better for everybody concerned. Uh, and it certainly pays financial dividends to government. Um, and I think we should be doing that all over the place um, and using the proceeds above all to create social housing. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm very enthusiastic about that. Um, not super optimistic that it's going to happen in the short term, but yeah. there are there are opportunities there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've been. Uh, yeah. I just you just so get so disappointed. Right. Even when when some of these city run organizations put together the development application themselves and it's like, oh, this giant site right beside a subway. I don't know. 10 to 12 story buildings, right? When any, you know, private real estate developer would be doing 40 stories there, right? They're always just so scared to offend anyone with their, uh, with their applications. But uh, that's yeah. right. And, and, you know, the Toronto city of Toronto planning department, um, you know, I certainly have, I, I am not universally well loved over there. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there are a lot of people in that department who want to see some change and are working to bring about change. Um, and also, of course, you know, the province is in the process of introducing all of these new um, changes to uh, Ontario planning law. And I'm hearing to Toronto in particular. So stuff is happening. Uh, I just hope that everybody keeps their eye on the ball and understands that um, dense mixed use projects, you know, are good fundamentally for everybody. Uh, and I hope, you know, people in the industry are thinking um, creatively and aggressively about how those things can be made to happen. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we're, 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 we're getting towards the end, but I, I do have a couple more questions I want to ask. Uh, uh, and again, just trying to be as topical as, as possible. 
and, and discuss, you know, some, some things that you've you've written about lately. Mm-hmm. I know there's been some discussion about, um, you know, the green belt and conservation authority. You know that, you know, the, the number of low density housing units is, you know, I think we mentioned before we started recording has been trending down for 20 years. You know, uh, in the Toronto CMA was, you know, 22,000 units probably in around, uh, you know, 2002 gone down to less than 5,000 a year and, and actually it's even trended down during Ford's uh, tenureship which is which is interesting because everyone said he was in the pockets of all these developers and if he if he is then he's certainly not doing them any favors by not allowing more right. <laughs> single family homes so you know should we be concerned about sprawl is this is it is it is it uh, um, is it getting too much focus for such a small amount of housing units that are actually being built? We should be concerned because, I mean, the fact is that we um, it matters and it's going to matter more as the population of the region grows rapidly. So, you know, on the first point, this is already a very sprawly region, right? I mean, admittedly, not as sprawly as big American cities, but, you know, it's a vast area for the population that we have, which is expensive to service, hard to get around, you know, both in terms of people's own quality of life and people's personal finances, but also in terms of government, you know, we shouldn't be continuing to build this way. And given the relatively low densities that exist, even in the city of Toronto, and certainly in Mississauga, and certainly in Brampton and Vaughan and Markham and Pickering, there's a lot of room to build and fill. And the provincial government is going to have to get its act together and actually make that happen, Um, you know, lock down the boundaries of the region more forcefully than they have before and signal really clearly that intensification is not just a nice thing to do, but is going to be absolutely necessary. Um, And why do I say that? Because the GTHA is projected to grow by, I believe, 2 million over the next 40 years. Is that correct? 2 million? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, Yeah, yeah, 100,000 a year, right? Right. So, I mean, these are huge numbers. And, you know, if you talk to people who are experts in transportation planning, they'll tell you that, you know, a city region of about 5 million can function fairly well with mostly running on cars, mostly being driven by cars, but a city region of 8 or 9 million can't. Yeah. You know, and the fact is that we're going to have to put most of the new people who are coming here in existing neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where they can get around mostly or entirely without cars, and that requires a dramatic shift. And it's got to happen right now. So I think, you know, the the lines have to be drawn. And I think what the Ford government is doing right now in that respect, um, in terms of allowing sprawl to continue, you know, is just an obvious step in the wrong direction. Um, unfortunately, you know, no one else in government has really had the backbone to make that happen in a decisive way. But, you know, we love the green belt. Everybody in the GTA now loves the green belt. And it is time to, you know, really understand that if you're going to have limits on sprawl, then the other side of that means intensification. And that means change in your backyard. um, And we need as much of it as possible right now. Yeah. So it's tough. I mean, the politics are tough, right? But yeah, I mean, all these suburban mayors, they they don't want infill. They, They fight it like crazy, right? Like someone in... Uh, so two citizens in what Aurora or Newmarket Aurora. got an got an award for for stopping a, a condo development on the main street. I just 
<laughs> blows my friggin' mind, right? That uh, that there's there's a, and I'm sure I'm sure maybe that we'll have a national NIMBY awards coming up at some point <laughs> in time. They'll uh, they'll start they'll start that out, but. Uh, well, folks need to make, as, as I was saying before, you know, developers and builders need to make good buildings that, you know, make people happy and, you know, and need to be able to tell everybody with a straight face that they're going to be making the block better and making the city better. Right. As you know, we really have no choice but to intensify. It's going to happen. But, you know, it really would be nice if these sort of qualitative things, you know, would be handled in a better way. And, you know, we started out by talking about, um, you know, the role of architecture and sort of the place of architects in society. And it matters. Ultimately, people feel like design is a frill and the soft stuff doesn't really matter. It does. I mean, on the big picture, it matters a lot. And we need to be smarter and more sophisticated about how we design new buildings, how we design new projects, because, you know, it makes them better. And, and it sort of serves this whole larger project of intensification, which you know, I think is incredibly important for, for all of us. Yeah. I was, uh, I was trying to get your, uh, your colleague, I think his name's Josh Kane on the show to talk a little bit about, uh, uh, about his new book. Um, obviously, you know, maybe I'll just ask you a question about that. Obviously with the, the failure of sidewalks labs in Toronto, um, you think, do you see something like that being built in the future? And is, you know, uh, you know, can we deal with these, you know, kind of ethical and privacy concerns in a, in a, in a, in a community? Will that ever work? Well, um, the short answer is that that project was never a real project. Yeah. Um, Josh O'Kane and I reported often together on, on that project for a couple of years. I spent a lot of work, uh, a lot of my time on it. This, by the way, for those who don't know, is the um, Sidewalk Toronto project uh, created by the company Sidewalk Labs, a sister company to Google. And they were essentially pitching a bunch of kind of disconnected ideas about the smart city uh, as coming together all in one project. And I'm not sure that the people on that team actually had the expertise to develop or to build much of anything. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure that all of their big ideas really held together. You know, um, I think it was a bunch of smart people trying to come up with things that sounded cool and throw them all at the boss at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, hope that he would buy in and hope that governments would buy in um, and that somebody would make some money along the way. So I think it was kind of a distraction for the city of Toronto and for the Waterfront Development Agency uh, to deal with this, um, you know, all of these questions about um, data collection and um surveillance and privacy and, you know, the lines between public and private governance and, you know, underground robots carrying garbage. And, you know, there was, it was a bit of a circus in retrospect. And, you know, the fundamental problems of the city and the region are, you know, we know what they are, you know, there are a lot of people coming, they have to have somewhere to live, they have to be able to get around, um, you know, and good developers and Waterfront Toronto has done some excellent work in this respect, you know, need to build, you know, good blocks, good streets, good new parks and public facilities to serve people. And so I think the smart city thing was kind of a, an unfortunate distraction from that very big task. Yeah. Yeah. It looked cool. I was hoping it was, I was hoping it would be real and that they could work out the, all the, you know, potential privacy issues and all that stuff. But, uh, Hey, I was, I mean, I was optimistic, you know, on day I wrote the very first article that anyone published about that project yeah. on the very day they announced it. And, you know, it's exciting to think about people coming in from outside with sort of, um, 
novel ideas and being able to shake everything up and solve the problems that have been, you know, weighing us down. But there are no magic bullets. There is no magic key. You know, um, making a city is not about, you know, one new innovation. It's about doing all of these fundamental things right that we as a society already know how to do. Um, and maybe our buildings aren't as good as they should be. And maybe we have chosen not to spend enough on the public realm, you know, and maybe we've put too much money and too much effort into taking care of cars and car infrastructure. But like fundamentally those problems can all be solved in pretty straightforward ways. And we just have to be rowing in the same direction and, and get on the same page about what a good city is and what kind of a city we want to have. Nice. Perfect. Perfect. Well, that's a, a great spot for us to go into the final section. So I don't know if you ever listened to the podcast, but we have a rapid fire section. So these are just, you know, two, three, four answer uh, responses. Um, you, know, you can go 10 words, but we're, we're trying to keep them really, really quick. So, right. okay. um, and it could be just a yes or no. Um, and you don't have to explain yourself, just yes or no. Is Uber good or bad for cities? Bad. Does Toronto need a Ferris wheel? Hmm. <laughs> as long as it's not on the waterfront, why not? <laughs> okay, great. Uh, when Ontario Place is reopened, will it suck? Unfortunately, very much yes. <laughs> um, do you ever go to City Place on purpose? I do. Okay, okay. I do, but that's because I'm a nerd for cities. So. <laughs> and if I can add a little bit to this question. <laughs> sure. It's a good place because there are a lot of people there. Yeah. Does taking pictures of very large trucks parked in Toronto and posting them on social media accomplish anything? No. <laughs> um, do you think we can build a new city from scratch in Ontario? No, and I don't think we should try. Okay. Uh, what will happen first? Your 55th birthday or the first occupancy on a Gen Keys Matt project? <laughs> I'm definitely going to bet on Keysmad in that case. <laughs> and it'll be good. It'll be a good project. <laughs> if you had to give Regent Park, the Regent Park revitalization a grade, what would it be? A solid B plus. And the coming phase of revitalization will be an A plus if city planning will get out of the way and allow it to happen. Perfect. Perfect. I love that answer. Does public consultation make developments better or worse? It's inconsequential. Okay, interesting. What is Ontario's second best city? You're gonna have to go with Ottawa. <laughs> Ottawa, interesting. Well, I appreciate it. That was a that was an awesome conversation. Uh, it sucks that Steve couldn't make it, but uh, we are dealing with uh, some unprecedented times in the in the new housing industry with uh, with the Bank of Canada smashing inflation with a hammer and uh, unfortunately doing some uh, some collateral damage on the uh, the new development industry, which uh, you know some people love to see, but others realize that the the long term implications are 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 less housing supply so Indeed. you know we, we did talk about Twitter where, where do they find you on Twitter uh, where if someone wants to get a get a hold of you uh, how do they how do they do this so I'm Alex Bozikovic on Twitter that's A-L-E-X-B-O-Z-I-K-O-V-I-C and if you google me you'll find my page at the Globe and Mail where you can find my articles and my email as well Perfect. And please subscribe to the Globe and Mail, support the journalistic uh, industry and and uh, and um, and do your part. Right. So, uh, again, thank you very much. And, and that's a wrap. Thanks so much, Ben.